This is Queer Histories, Queer Futures, presented by Last Call, a podcast about queer resistance in New Orleans and the people behind the movement. I'm Free For All. And I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson. Hey, Free. Hey, Lane. I have a question for you. What's that? When you think of a lawyer, like if you close your eyes and think lawyer, Mm -hmm. what do you think of? Um, Like... Who is it? Like David Duchovny or whatever, having sex on a desk. Is that what you were thinking of? I mean, that's definitely <laughs> one of the one of the many types of lawyers that exists out there in the world. Cool. I actually don't know if David Duchovny was ever a lawyer I, on TV. I don't think. He was. I don't know which one I'm thinking. But of. But someone having sex with someone they shouldn't be having sex with on their desk. Yeah, yeah. That's a lawyer. That's a lawyer. That's a, that's oh. right. <laughs> That's a good lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) That's three years of higher education type Mm -hmm. of lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, in mainstream media, we see these like singular images of what a lawyer is or what a doctor is or Mm -hmm. what like a sex worker is. And often it takes going outside of those mainstream medias to see the breadth of what any one of these like vocations can look like and be like right yeah so yeah I grew up in a place surrounded by corporate lawyers that put on their suits and took the train and went to you know work in a big city Um, and then there are potentially for those of you listening to this podcast lawyers that reflect nothing that bear no resemblance to that description and one of the people that we're going to meet today is on that side of the aisle. That's right. Today we have two stories about different sides of the law. The first one is about a man named Mark Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Uh, one great thing that ties together these two stories about opposite ends of the law spectrum is that both of the pieces you're going to hear in this episode are student-produced pieces. And the first piece comes from Owen Eber. Um And it's about Mark Gonzalez. Let's just get into it. Yeah, Owen Owen takes it from here. Don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. You do not have to have 35 well-heeled, organized people to organize a march. A handful of people well-organized with some skills and help can do it. So so don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good is, is the way I just keep Hello, and thanks for listening to the Queer Histories, Queer Futures podcast. I'm Owen Ever, and in this episode, we'll hear stories of queer resistance from Mark Gonzalez. I'll let him introduce himself. Mark Michael Gonzalez. I'm an attorney in private practice in New Orleans, although that leads people to think something that isn't as important to me as my activism, so I consider my community activism to be as important as the fact that I'm a lawyer. Mark grew up in Chicago. Then for school, he moved to Santa Cruz with its bohemian attitude and naked collegiate sunbathing on the quad. He spent some time in San Francisco, which was a pretty happening place for homosexuals, and then, via Tulane, made his way to New Orleans. 
And, it, and so here I was, I was an out gay man, working as a VISTA volunteer, knew I was gay, wanted to do some gay activism, uh, politically left to radical. And the gay community back then, you know, 85, 86, something like that, was to a great extent just peop gay, gay people who go, went out to bars. And those were really amazing times, quite frankly. You, you really were kind of at the crest of something courageous and new. To me, one of the most memorable events was when they arrested a bunch of people out in front of Jules. One, one evening they were like, it was rather common for gay guys to hang out and even spill over into the street. And one day, some jerk cop got it up his, you know what, to arrest these people. And so this was really rather outrageous. All these guys got, got um, arrested for obstructing the sidewalk. And even back then, if you walked down to Pat O'Brien's, there were like, you know, 35 people obstructing the sidewalk. Never any an issue. Back in those days, also, gay guys seen holding hands or being affectionate in public were arrested for obstructing the sidewalk. You know, those were the days. And I mean, um, it, was, it was pretty outrageous. And there was an attorney by the name of Jim Kellogg who I got to be friends with and got to know. And um, so what happened after that arrest was Jim and I actually gathered the names and we had a rally at, I want to say St. Mark's Community Center, which was very supportive, on North Rampart Street. And we had a pretty large rally, raised hundreds of dollars for costs and bail and stuff. So that was the beginning of, we're not going to put up with it here. That was the beginning of activism to my, in my life in New Orleans. Mark was joining an ongoing nationwide movement, a moment when many were choosing to no longer be silent and to demand basic rights for the LGBT community. But of course, here in New Orleans, like in any city or scene, there were schisms, conflict, factionalization, and arguments for and against mainstream assimilation. Some people even went so far as to be pro-policing, which is pretty lame. So this gay community decides, this group in the gay community decides to, to buy bulletproof vests for the police. These are the guys arresting us for walking hand in hand and, and, and we're gonna we're gonna have a fundraiser. There was a fundraiser in the French Quarter for to buy bulletproof vests for the police. Oh yeah. You know, the gay community has always been let me find the right word. There's a bunch of sycophants. They're still in the community and, and stuff. And um, we had a several of us, it was a small group of us, had a, <laughs> at a demonstration out front of this fundraiser. And we were, we were holding signs that said, save your money, shoot yourself, or something save like your that. Money, shoot yourself. Save your money, shoot yourself. Yeah, I mean, so, so there was that going on. There was, we, we had, some of, the, some of the more radical of us also had demonstrations against the gay bars that were being, you know, overtly racist and sexist misogynistic. My friend Mark Rexrode, who died of AIDS, he was the one who, who was who was involved in the in the anti-police bulletproof vest demonstration. And uh, he and I would go out and on two or three occasions we'd go out to the gay bars and kind of hand out stuff against the misogynism of, of um, Lafitte's and Bourbon Pub. 
men can be such assholes as a general, <laughs> as, a, as a group. There were two rather important lesbian bars, Charlene's and Diane DiMasselli's, Diane's. So the activism, believe it or not, the active, the, the political activism at that time was, was not energized by the males in the community. It was Charlene and the women's groups. We went to Charlene to get involved with, with getting Gay Pride on, on, on the, you know, get it going, and she was very supportive. I love Charlene. <laughs> I'm almost crying with you. She was really supportive. Let's see. So you had you had like a handful of people, and I said, "Okay, we're going to do a demonstration against, you know, Sheriff Fody requiring people with AIDS or HIV or gay wearing pink suits in the prison." So we had a demonstration about that. Sheriff Fody is not one of my favorite people. <laughs> Another form of government-sanctioned oppression that many encountered, particularly those with HIV and AIDS, was that of violent neglect. As a need for tactical civil disobedience grew, chapters of the grassroots organization ACT UP, or AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, began to form. This movement quickly became known for its symbolic direct actions and striking visual campaigns. We had ACT UP New Orleans, and I was very instrumental in that for the beginning, because I was, I was a, I think I was a lawyer at that time, so I was their lawyer, yeah, I remember that. I think we were meeting weekly. In the beginning, it would be a handful of people, four or five, six people. When we started becoming active, the weight from testing to treatment in New Orleans at what was then called Charity Hospital, I forget what the unit was called, was nine months. You, you went into the task force, it was, in a, it was in existence at the time, you went into the task force, you got your anonymous test, they said, well, you know, you got to get consulted, and you get consulted, and you're told you're HIV positive. You need to go to Charity Hospital. You go to Charity Hospital, your first next appointment, nine months off. A nine-month delay is kind of like a death sentence. So what we did in response to that was um, a demonstration. That this was the biggest thing that Act of New Orleans really did. It was a very successful. Um, we closed down Loyola Avenue in front of City Hall just had a demonstration, shut it down. You know, ACT UP New York pretty much taught us how to do this. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to close the street? Or are you trying to get word out about something? Well, if you're trying to get word out about something, yes, of course you're gonna work with the police. You're gonna tell them, look, we're gonna do this demonstration at this time. Yes, you're gonna have to arrest us because we're illegally blocking a street. You know, one of the things you learned from ACT UP that was great was you know, you've gotta make it visual. And so here's the 30 people that were arrested, including city council member Johnny Jackson. Obviously, they didn't change just because of a demonstration, but that brought it to a lot of people's attention. And the delays did start, did, did start to go down. But we got great coverage. It made the news. You know, it was like very, very visual. So that, that was a great thing. And we learned from that also that a relatively small number of people who are thinking alike and have the energy can do amazing things. ACT UP never had hundreds of people in New Orleans. It was never more than you know, 12, 15 people at a meeting. 
but it was people that had a similarity of concept of action and thought and how we're going to do it and um, a lot of young people and a lot of women. Act Up New I think it was Act Up New York and San Francisco were very helpful to us. It's one of the other things that activists ought to understand too, I guess, would be. So find the other groups that have been where you are trying to go and don't you don't have to reinvent the freaking wheel. So we got help. San Francisco, I think, loaned us a bunch of t-shirts that we could sell to make money for our group. It's got Dick Tracy kissing Clark Kent. Oh, okay. And Clark wants Dick. Sense. Dick wants condoms. I still have them, you know. So, so you activists out there, be careful about buying too many t-shirts. Um, um, <laughs> um. Thank you, Mark, for sharing your stories and inspiring continued activism. And thank you to Jim Meadows and Hannah Pepper Cunningham for conducting the interview. Original music in this episode of Queer History's Queer Futures podcast was composed by Ruth X. Additional sounds from Zapsblatt and from footage of the Act Up Ashes action. I'm Owen Ever. Take care. Stay queer. That piece was produced by Owen Ever, a social historian, performer, and theater maker. He works at the New Orleans Pharmacy Museum, which is an incredible museum in the French Quarter. So intense. Uh, Also, if you want to learn about an upcoming performance that Owen is a part of, visit vagabondinventions.com. And if you're hearing this as it's being dropped, that is running through March. So definitely go check that out while you still can. Also, the music you heard in this piece is by Ruth X, and their bandcamp is psychichotline.bandcamp.com, and the O in hot is a zero. Like always. Naturally. So now we, we move to the other side of the law, lawbreakers. Um, Our side of the law. Yeah. Though really... Uh, not really lawbreakers, just people who found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time more than once. Mm. Um, So this is a story about Marty Youngblood, who is one of the first um, interviewees that we ever had in this project uh, when we were back when we were doing our dike bar research. Not that we're totally done with that. Um, But Marty was uh, one of the first people that came into our community through that project. And she actually passed away in 2017. Um, And Aaron Roussel, who has worn a lot of hats for Last Call over the years, um, made this piece in tribute to her. And it talks about her various run-ins with the law. Marty Youngblood moved to New Orleans from the Florida Panhandle in 1969. She moved into a French Quarter apartment where rent was only 78 bucks a month. And before she became the renovator to the homes of Queens, she worked a smattering of short-lived jobs, which included delivering firewood to upstairs dwellings in the quarter, canning tomatoes, and for a brief stint trying to sell New Orleans snowballs back in Florida. I have to tell you a cute little story. This happened probably 30, 35 years ago. 
I was unemployed at the time. So I said, well, I'm going to go down to the sheriff's office and apply there. You know, because I really like to work in the jail, like to work around them and things like that. Oh, yeah, I had it all set by my So jail is the place where Marty thinks she's going to get to work around women. All she has to do is ace the interview. Well, at that time, they were allowed as part of their application to do what's a little test, lie detector. <laughs> they were allowed to do that. So they hooked me up to that fucking machine. And here we go, you know. Have you ever had any relationship with a woman? No. The fucking needle went off the page, you hear? Off the page. Man looked at me and said, we're not going to be able to do any business. I said, okay, nice to meet you. Bye. Uh, <laughs> off the page. <laughs> I mean, and I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had enough power to confront that or deal with that at the time. Now I wouldn't have any problem with that. But at the time, okay, see you later. That's all I could do. You know, all I could say. I was arrested 13 times for wearing pants that didn't have a zipper on the side and not having any visible means of support on your person, which means you had to have checks up. I mean, you couldn't walk around with jeans and you had to have some proof that you were not gay. Now, how ridiculous is that? I mean, you know, come on, man. Who walks around with check stuff in their pocket all the time, especially when you're trying to look fly? It just doesn't happen. I mean, what do they expect? I mean, we had an image to keep up. You gotta walk around with money in your pocket, but not that shit, though. No. Oh, you didn't exist if you didn't bar hop. You know you can go out, and even though I don't go to the bars that much anymore, you could go out if you wanted to and feel accepted. You could feel part of a community. We were bar rats mostly, you know? <laughs> and that's pretty much the way we hung. We played pool on Thursday nights or whenever and participated in tournaments and went to softball games and just where all the guy, dykes were hanging out, you know? Always more working class. You know, that was a big thing for us to, uh, go bar hopping on the weekends. We didn't really know each other by the last things too much. It just wasn't done. I mean, it was a very private thing. And, you know, that you'd have to really know somebody to know the last name. <laughs> and to know the phone number, who you were. You had scored, totally scored. It's just the way it was. People were so afraid. Afraid of the family not accepting and afraid of everything. And the first time I got arrested, I had just come in from fishing with some friends. I had worm gook all over my hands. They sent me in, sent me in the bathroom with a can of Comet Ajax, not even good Comet Ajax, and told me to get all that shit off my hands before they could fingerprint me. And then we shipped off in that little sale with 25 to 30 other women. It was a hoot. 
so Marty did end up at the jail around women, but she certainly wasn't getting paid for it. I'm grateful to Marty and her friends for coming out and showing up in lesbian space in spite of what they had to lose. My name is Erin Roussel, and I'm a member of Last Call, and that's how I got to know Marty. She passed in 2017, and I think that she's pretty happy that we're still listening to her stories. Many thanks to Mary Caps for introducing Marty to us, and to Sarah Pick and Rachel Lee for the interview. We love you, Marty. Erin Roussel is an educator and culture bearer from South Louisiana. She has been a member of Last Call since 2015 and is so grateful for the beautiful connections this project has brought into her life. Erin really has worn a lot of hats for Last Call over the years, and we really appreciate the energy and the love she has put into the collective. Thanks, Erin. Thanks, Erin. I love that piece. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Such a loving tribute. Yeah. All right, that's it for this week. We really hope you enjoyed meeting those people, hearing those student-produced pieces. Uh, you too can make a podcast. Believe it. Uh, free, are there any announcements before we wrap up? Yes, yes. Uh, Alleged Lesbian Activities, the play produced by Last Call, uh, based on interviews that we did here in New Orleans on the dyke bar scene in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, is coming to Boston with a brand new scene for Boston, based on Boston interviews about Boston bars from the same time period. It's not a show to be missed if you're going to be around in the first week of April. Check them out. You can go to the Theater Offensives website to uh, find out information about that. Great. Okay. And credits. This project was created in partnership with the New Orleans LGBT Center and Alternate Roots through an Alternate Roots Partners in Action grant and through a network of ensemble theaters Net 10 Exchange grant. Additional funding from the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation. Last Call is fiscally sponsored by the National Performance Network. Uh, love you, Free. I love you, Lane. And you know, dear listener, we love you too. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening. We only have one message to leave you with, and that is, until next time, stay Stay gay. gay.